Welcome to Sounds Familiar, a podcast where we discuss two pieces of media that share themes, plot points, or overarching ideas. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to keep up to date with our upload schedule, news, and discussions. Take your seat, grab your popcorn, and silence your cell phones now. Please enjoy the show. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our show. My name is Caleb, and wherever there is injustice, you will find me. Uh, I'm Stephanie, and wherever there is suffering, I'll be there. I'm Justin, and wherever liberty is threatened, you will find me. Hi. Um, welcome to our show, where we discuss two pieces of media that share themes, plot points, or overarching ideas at varying levels of abstraction. Uh, today, we will be talking about two movies that utilize the mistaken for badass trope, The Three Amigos and Galaxy Quest. All right. So, Three Amigos, Galaxy Quest. They're both about actors. Actors. Being summoned by fans who don't realize that they're actors to right. come and save their town and or planet right these actors play heroes and so these uh personas get taken as fact by people who i guess don't understand the concept of movies i I know the the aliens i understand they're shown as like they don't understand they have no concept of lying so they inherently like don't even have a thing that's true that gets addressed we'll get into that (laughs) okay okay First up, we're just going to dive right into The Three Amigos, uh, released in 1986 and directed by John Landis, uh, also known for such films as Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, Spies Like Us, another Chevy Chase film, uh, Coming to America, and the Thriller music video. Isn't he the one with the shitty son? I don't know. The one who wrote, yes. right? He's apparently yes, a, a terrible person. Max Landis, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think that's his dad. I don't actually know. but I believe, um, I believe you are right. Yeah, so that's interesting. <laughs> I was starting things off with a bang. So I wanted to ask if... You guys have both seen this movie before, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I actually grew up watching it because it's one of my dad's favorite movies. Um, which seems kind of weird because I don't know if most people even know this movie. Like, it's not... It's not really big or popular yeah. or famous. Um, Stephanie, I'm assuming you hadn't seen it until I made you watch it when I we were dating. I had even heard of it. I, I think when Caleb first mentioned it to me, I thought of the three caballeros. Like the, the which she still hasn't seen. <laughs> no, which I which is seen. one of my favorite Disney things. If it doesn't have the same plot, then I don't want to see. It. I'm just <laughs> but um, it uh, yeah, I I think I kind of mixed it up with that because you know the I don't know. <laughs> the naming convention was similar, but no, I hadn't actually heard of it, which is a little odd to me. I mean, with all the uh, the big name talent it has, uh, but no, I uh, I had not seen this movie until uh, Caleb wanted me to watch it with him <laughs> a few years ago, and uh, I was like, uh, yeah, this is about what I expect from a Martin Short slash Steve Martin slash Chevy Chase '80s comedy. <laughs> Um, I had seen it once, I believe, with my dad. I don't know if it was like a VHS we rented from Blockbuster or if I saw it on cable. 
Um, so watching it, I just watched it today, uh, was a nice refresher for me. Um, I'd been aware of it, and I know things reference to it. Uh, for some reason, people our age, it kind of lost its staying power. Um, but for a while, it was like a cultural touchstone. It was one of those big movies just because of, like Stephanie said, the star power it had. Yeah. Um, and it's funny what you said about it being like an 80s comedy. I'm always surprised by how much I enjoy it by how <laughs> raunchy it isn't. Yeah. Like there's a there's like a single joke about El Guapo yeah. not knowing what foreplay is. We'll get there. We'll <laughs> but, get there. Um, it, it's, I, I laughed out loud a lot, which does I, yeah. you know, it takes a very particular type of comedy movie to actually make me laugh out loud. Right, the slapstick's actually funny, generally speaking. It is yeah. Steve Martin and Steve Martin is particularly good at yeah. That was <laughs> my last note. Was Steve Martin's physical comedy is fantastic. Um, just because like it, some of the jokes are just not that great, but the way he delivers them <laughs> is hilarious. Well, just that bit with him um, when he's in the jail uh, jail cell tied to the wall. He got so much comedy out of not being able to walk. <laughs> <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> He's great with that. All right. So let's get into it. Uh, the movie stars Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, and Martin Short. Uh, some of whom have, you know, are still beloved um, comedians and actors. And some of them are Chevy Chase. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Straight from IMDb. Your description for Three Amigos. Three actors accept an invitation to a Mexican village to perform their on-screen bandit fighter roles, unaware that it is the real thing. Mm. Well, there you go. <laughs> you really <laughs> see that too much as legend. Well, there you go. <laughs> as if she has never seen the film before. Hmm. Uh, oh, my gosh. It's okay. been a few days. So we open... We open on the Amigos singing a song, riding their horses. Mm -hmm. uh, the music in the movie was done by Randy Newman. Um, Toy Story? Yes. Marriage Story. Toy and Marriage. Yes. Um, the man loves stories. He does. <laughs> what can he say? <laughs> um, he loves Amigos. All right, too. right off the bat, them holding that high, no high note for a really, really long time was <laughs> yeah. just funny to me right off the bat. <laughs> it tells you this is this is a silly comedy. Oh, like yes. this. <laughs> Let me get out my notes. <laughs> yeah, we. I wrote like a page and a half of notes for this, which is like three times as much as I wrote for Galaxy Quest. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a lot more about this movie. I'm interested what Justin wrote because I wrote a lot more about this movie than Galaxy Quest 2, but it was, it, it wasn't like, it wasn't like it gave me more to think about exactly. It was more just like, I kept noticing things that I was like, what? <laughs> and writing them down. Uh, my notes for both movies are kind of short um like the turtle just vibing is a note i have <laughs> we'll get the there turtle. Yeah. We'll get, we'll the turtle. we will get we will get to the turtle we'll yeah get to the turtle i'm sure fans of the turtle are clamoring for that they'll just have to wait okay so we open on a, a tiny little town in mexico mm -hmm. the cantina is called cantina del borracho which translates to drunkard's canteen straightforward yep um a uh, woman and a little boy from this, the town of Santo Poco, which mm -hmm. translates to Little Saint, mm -hmm. come to the town to send a message or come, to look for heroes. They go to the cantina, get turned away because everyone there is a drunkard and a bandit. 
Um, they end up in a movie in a church. They catch one of the three Amigos films, and they send a telegram to the three Amigos asking for their help. Oh, what year is this? In the movie? Yeah. I believe oh, it's I wrote 19, it down. It's 1919 or 1916. I think 16. Really? Yeah. It's something like so that. So it's in the silent it was like era of movies, right? Yes, it was silent. There was a guy yeah. on a piano playing along. Right, right. That's actually my first note is the organ player. Um, no specific <laughs> note. I just really want to go to a silent film where there's a live organ player. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound it seems awesome. like a very dynamic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. the We see the Amigo salute for the first time in this silent film. And boy, did they get a lot of mileage out of this joke. I was reading it as a prostate exam joke. I did not get that. They turn their head and cough, which seems like a joke for Oh, man. Yeah. You agree? (laughs) I didn't get that either. Why would you know that? I I would. I'm not an old man. I've never. Anyway. That happens four or five times, and they just got way too much mileage out of that dumb doing out of that dumb joke. Pausing for a second so Stephanie can make a drink. <laughs> we'll edit this one. Priorities. Out. No, we will We'll edit this. In- <laughs> <laughs> or we'll just keep it in. <laughs> All right, so we then cut to the Amigos, who it's revealed are surprise actors in Hollywood. Uh, they want more money for their next film, and they get fired. Um, By John they- Lovitz and. Uh, I feel so bad I can't pronounce his last That's name. Joe, who sounds like Tegna. this. Uh, he's, uh, he's Fat Tony on The Simpsons. That's where I'm most familiar with him from. Um, but I, I love John Lovitz in anything that he's in. He plays that same character in everything that he's in. Uh, and I, his nervous energy just really vibes with me. <laughs> so they get fired. As soon as they get fired, they get the telegram to go to, go to Mexico and help those people. Um, so they sneak back into the studio lot. I noticed Steve Martin walking along the studio wall in his underwear. <laughs> when he was trying to make the bird sounds to get the guy's attention, Stephanie had no idea what he was trying to do. I, that bit went on for so long. <laughs> it did. It did. Okay. Oh, well, I was like, wait, what is what is happening right now? <laughs> so I know this movie is one of the movies that would be on like the Mount Rushmore of classic comedies. Uh, but I feel like it's probably about 15 minutes too long. It, it is. It's kind of long. Galaxy Quest, it's I feel like, moves like, a lot faster. It's actually like four minutes longer than Galaxy Quest. Mm-hmm. That doesn't even surprise me. <laughs> um, so once that's done, um, oh, enter the random German. Right, the, um, yeah, the, the German subplot for some reason. So I It's don't an know. easy stock bad guy. It's just scary yeah, it German. Was, this was in the rest of the world was in the middle of World War One, but America wasn't yet because I think this was, this was 1913, or so it was either in the middle of it or about to happen. Um, I think the war didn't really start until 14. Doesn't matter. Um, so there's something I didn't notice. The f- we didn't. That's it. Something I didn't notice the first couple times I watched was the German tells the bartender. Uh, to expect some friends of his and they're not as friendly as I am. The Amigos 
reach the bar before the Germans' friends do, which is why the entire bar is terrified of them during the My Little Buttercup number. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is great thought it for was comedy. Because, like, they were scared of them because they're like, what are these crazy guys no, doing? No, no, no it's because they thought that those yeah. guys would kill them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so they, they had this, like, they were like the Joker to those people. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and it's actually, and it's great because it's a, uh, it's kind of a tangent of the mistaken for badass because um, obviously the main, the main subplot of that is um, when they go to the village and they encounter uh, El Guapo's gang. But um, this is kind of a little setup to it where (laughs) due to circumstances uh, rather cartoonishly falling into place, (laughs) they over and over again get mistaken for these tough guys and the exact you're right same it's thing not just the one they right. got set up for them it happens in the bar and through complete happenstance but yeah that's what happens uh, i wrote down a line from when they first walk into the bar we're not mexicans we're from out of town <laughs> I, well yeah straightforward fair point <laughs> um even though they're clearly not german but uh you know i guess that's <laughs> Oh, um, there, Chevy Chase had several gags throughout this that were echoed, like echoes of very similar gags he had in Community. The first one I noted was he was having trouble eating. He couldn't keep the food in his And that reminded me of the pilot of Community when yep. he's having trouble making that hot dog. Um, so, and that wasn't the only one time that that happened. You can take my film buff card and my comedy fan card away after I say this, but I actually haven't seen that many uh, Chevy Chase movies. I haven't either. And based on the ones I've seen, his comedy style is just Pierce. It's like Pierce was written specifically. <laughs> I mean, it was, for him. You know, it was just, we just want Chevy Chase. Can we get a Chevy Chase type? Oh, we we can get him. We can afford that. <laughs> we can get Chevy okay. Chase. Well, Three Amigos and Community is the only things I've seen him in, so I'm have, in the same boat. I have also seen Spies Like Us, but that's no, about it. I've seen Fletch, Vacation, This, and Community. And you were apologizing? Like I said, I've only seen <laughs> Another great line with the um, the three sisters in the town. One of them says, I like the one which is not so smart. Her sister says, which one is that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which kind of leads me into one of my, I guess, main criticisms of the movie, even though I, I don't, I hesitate to call it a criticism because I don't know how intentional it was necessarily, but um, I feel like the, like the personalities of the three main characters could have been diversified a little more just to give them a little more of a group dynamic, especially yeah. because they're so like tropey. Th- they're not with. distinct enough from each other. Right, right. To, um, to enhance the comedy, I feel like they should have each had a little more defined roles. Yeah, like the, if I were to describe them, I would say like Chevy Chase is the slightly dumber one. Though they're Martin, all kind of dumb. Like, Martin that's... Short is the sweet and innocent and kind one. Right, he's sensitive. And Steve, yes, sensitive one. And Steve Martin is Steve Martin. <laughs> but like he's kind of the brains, but he's also very much not. So um, we'll get into it a little more when we reach the big climactic scene of the movie. Uh, but. Uh, Dusty, Chevy Chase's character, kind of sucks. Uh, he, <laughs> he doesn't. He, he doesn't bring anything to the table. Steve Martin and Martin Short both get these moments where their characters actually do something to help the situation. He just kind of yeah. falls into a closet. 
That's kind of true. <laughs> I feel like they didn't know what to do with him because the, like we said, the main characterization for him that stands out is that he's kind of he's kind of dim, you know. And yet they all are like they. Hence the joke that Caleb referenced, where the girls are like, you know, like I like the one who's not that smart, and she's like, which one? <laughs> so because they're all dumb, like that's the whole point. So he needed a little more to set him apart besides just being the musical one, I guess. Mm-hmm. I will say, as much Chevy Chase bashing as we're doing, he does have one of my favorite bits in the movie, and that's when he's um, talking to that woman, and she's like, uh, we can take a walk and you can kiss me on the veranda. And he's like, the lips would be fine. That's a, we, that was yeah, it. Or... That was the other one that's reminiscent of a joke in Community. Right. Um, when the, uh, they say, um, um, Jeff kissed Annie, and they say where, and Pierce says, that's inappropriate, I'm assuming on the mouth. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Same joke. <laughs> it's almost like they watched the three amigos and then wrote that. Like maybe they did. Um, okay. Yeah. The, um, so we get to the town. The th- all three of them have to share one donkey on the way there, and right, then one bed right, there. Right. So we get a lot of the three Looney bar- Tunes. Yes. <laughs> Which is my general descriptor for this movie. It's just very like, uh, very extremely unapologetically like slapsticky. Which, given that it's an '80s comedy, is like I far prefer this to the dumb raunchy comedies that were really yeah. popular at the time. Yeah. This actually made me laugh a surprising amount. Right. It feels kinda um, kinda old timey, you know, a little bit. Yeah, very three stooges. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and again, um we'll talk about it more when we get there in the plot, but there's a there's a hard shift with one scene in the <laughs> desert where it goes from like a pretty straightforward kind of silly 80s comedy <laughs> to full on Mel Brooks Looney Tunesery. Yep. Yeah. And it it's like night and day. Right, it goes straight yep. into like stuff that couldn't even happen in real life but it's like what did that we'll, start? We'll, we'll get, get there. there. We're almost there. Yeah. Okay, so we get to the first encounter. They think they're the, they're told that El Guapo's men are going to come in a couple couple days and they were hired to scare them off. They think it's a show. They think El Guapo and his men are like a local group of entertainers. Right. Um, so the gang shows up, and because they're acting so crazy, they actually scare off <laughs> they the scare villains, off the first couple and the guys. illusion isn't broken yet. Um, similar to in, in Galaxy Quest, the first time, the first encounter with the right. bad guy, the illusion isn't broken yet until something else happens. Right, I actually wanted to bring that up because that's, uh, for this trope, it seemed to be kind of an important sort of first step um, to uh, to kind of, right, to perpetuate the illusion because if the illusion gets broken right away, then there's not as much tension. So the people who have asked them there, who are um, who believe they are heroes, have to be initially kind of convinced that that's the case, which, which is what happens, right? Because they're being so ridiculous. They freak out the first couple of guys that come there. They take off. And everyone's like, "Oh my God! You like you rid the town of yeah." They have a whole the they villains. have a whole party. Exactly. Uh, Chevy Chase pretends to play the guitar. <laughs> um, Martin Short tells a story to a bunch of little girls and old women. Um, oh, cute. There's dancing. Everyone oh, has a great time. Yeah. Which is okay. So he pretends to play the guitar in this scene. Isn't he actually playing in the desert? It looks yeah. like. I was, I was, I could not figure it out because in the scene at the, at the at the fiesta that night, it it looks like he's not even playing anything. Like he's his fingers are just on the string. He doesn't know what he's, <laughs> he's doing. Yeah, he's just making sounds. But then in the desert, it looks like he might actually be playing. Chalk it up to too much tequila. Uh, which real quick, I wanted to. 
I wanted to bring that up. There's that scene in the bar where um, they ask for a beer. They don't have beer. They only have tequila and they take a sip of tequila. There's that funny moment where they all react uh, at the same time. Um, and they say they've never had it before. I thought, I was like, there's no way they're from California. They're big Hollywood movie stars. There's no way they've never had tequila. Uh, tequila didn't get popular in the U.S. until World War II. That's so, very interesting. That, that joke checked out. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I might have heard about how to drink at some point, but it didn't stick, clearly. Um, so we've had our first encounter. We've had the party. Now we are finally introduced to El Guapo, the villain, the handsome one. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um, portrayed by um, Neil Gaiman's uh, Hispanic cousin. <laughs> Caleb kept saying he looked like Neil Gaiman because of his head, his hair being all like curly, like that, just generally frazzled looking, <laughs> which is fair. He, he yeah. Um, so the, the banditos tell El Guapo about the crazy men that showed up. El Guapo and uh, like 50 of his men ride back to town. And three amigos think it's another show. They think it's an encore the next day. They're riding around doing their thing. And El Guapo commands his second in command, Jefe, to God. shoot one of them. And he shoots Steve Martin in the shoulder. Mm. I love I love that scene. <laughs> Excuse me one yeah. moment. And he walks back. <laughs> Excuse me one moment. He walks back and says, This is real. They're going to kill us. Right. This it's is already shot. To get broken down. This this is where I should say this is where our hero's illusion begins to break down. Because this is the point where they start to realize that it's that they think it's real. Or that, yeah, they really yeah. they have actually crossed the threshold. Exactly. They are out of their. <laughs> this is not a a movie production. This is a something else entirely. I don't remember why I wrote this. <laughs> it had to be during this scene. Nope, I know why. It's the okay. So the heroes realize it's real. They run away, and the bandits <laughs> burn down the church, burn down the town, and they leave. Yeah, the illusion is broken, like, solidly yeah. right there. <laughs> the heroes ride back to town a couple hours later for some reason. Like, why would you go back there? They Those forgot something. Did they, I, I, I can't remember what it was, but they ask, they ask one of the uh, residents if they've seen something, and they are informed that uh, El Guapo and his men burned everything, took everything. Right, right, right. They left their stuff. That, that's right, okay. Right. Um, so then Ned decides, Ned Needlander, who is Mark George's character, we didn't actually name the characters. Oops. Oh gosh. Um, I forgot. <laughs> um, so he's the one who starts sliding real bullets into their prop pistols <laughs> and tells them that, hey, we need to go help these people, which is wh why I wrote, Ned is a stone cold badass. Yes. <laughs> I like MVP. MVP. Exactly. I love it. All right. So they head out to go confront El Guapo at his hideout. <laughs> this is where the shift happens that Justin was talking about. Yes. Uh, we go from outdoor shots, clearly like filmed on location, to what is very obviously a soundstage desert scene at sunset. Yeah. Featuring a musical number with singing desert wildlife. And our turtle. And our friend, the vibe and turtle. <laughs> So I, I have a point to make about the previous scene, but I, I, I have to talk about this fucking turtle. Uh, <laughs> the entire scene before the song starts, you just see him standing there, not moving, not <laughs> <laughs> standing away Chevy Chase, and it is a long 
scene before they start singing. He was just there hanging out. He's literally just just chilling in the shoes with the dudes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Um, You had a point about the previous scene? Just real quick. I love once Ned suggests, hey, like, we owe it to these people. We screwed up. We got them into this. Like, we need to get them out. There was no resistance. They were all like, which was nice. Yeah. It was great. Right, and which is why I like Ned, because he's, like, he's the he, he's the fiery little, like, guy with the heart, and he's, yeah. the other ones are like, oh, we need to get out of here, and he's like, no, we need to fight for the people and be real heroes, and I was like, you go, Ned. <laughs> but you're right, they, they kind of went with it. They were like, oh, okay, um, which I think, to be fair, was kind of symptomatic of how the, the movie wasn't really that focused on interpersonal drama, to say the least. Uh, which is something I uh, noticed in Galaxy Quest was a lot more of a thing, and we'll get to that. But um, right, because because basically when Ned says, "All right, we have to, we have to fight, we have to rise to the occasion," um, they were just kind of like, "Oh, that didn't really occur to me, but yeah, I guess we do need to do that." <laughs> uh, and and it just goes from there. So um, so that was his his primary role, I think, was to be the heart of the yeah, group. Yeah, you're very much right on that. Yeah, he was the heart of the group. And so, anyways, so they go off on their uh, road of yeah. trials. <laughs> so, Sing the song with the animals, which there's no way I'm falling asleep comfortably with a coyote looming over me. No, no. Um, um, so, c- cementing the shift to Looney Tunes land. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when, when they're settling down for the night, but right before the musical number, they ask what direction El Guapo's hideout is. Uh, they said east and which way is east and all three of them point a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's never addressed. No, no. <laughs> which way to Albuquerque? Way so they, were, they were at some point given this long um, mysterious uh, list of instructions. Um, so, oh, I did write down the have another Western movie homage, The Singing Cowboy, um, which is in and of itself a trope. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, so they set off, <laughs> and we meet, we get to the singing bush. If you have not Creepy. seen the movie, the singing bush is literally just a dried up bush in the middle of a canyon in the desert that sings folk songs. It does not respond to any outside stimuli. It does not answer questions. It does not speak. It merely sings... She'll be coming around the mountain <laughs> and other assorted classics. How Lovecraftian. <laughs> is Why is it here? What does it want? Yeah. Does it want? We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> so it's been a pretty straightforward comedy up until this point. And then not five minutes apart, we have a singing turtle and a singing bush and, and an it? invisible swordsman. Right, the invisible invisible swordsman. So we went from normal to just very magical. Just this little burst of magic in the world. Um, (laughs) Right, it's the normal world versus the the, uh, the magical world. So there's there's another great little gag where when they arrive at the singing bush, they all throw their left, their their right leg off the horse and step down. Um, Dusty is in the middle and when he throws his leg around he just ends up on the horse next to him but facing backwards. Great little physical comedy <laughs> bit, yeah. 
Um, we summon the invisible swordsman and Dusty kills him because he did not fire his gun up in the air. I love, I love the gag when they reach down to check his pulse. Oh my God. There's just a dirt outline that looks like there's a man laying there in the dirt and he picks up his arm and it's like, you can see he's clearly pretending to pick up an arm, but then he drops it and there's a a little dust cloud that comes up. Just a great little touch. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) So after this, the heroes finally make it to the hideout. It is El Guapo's birthday. And uh, Jefe has acquired him a plethora of piñatas, which is one of my dad's favorite scenes. That's the one he quoted all the time was, tell me, Jefe, would you say I have a plethora? Where they say (laughs) a million times. I know that I, Jefe, am not as, (laughs) do not have your intellect or education. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, oh, we didn't even mention that Car- Carmen, the woman who went to find them, yeah, set up the as like Steve, only female character, set up as Steve. Mar- well, okay, don't forget her two unnamed sisters <laughs> yeah, and, the- and and El Guapo's madam. Oh yeah, the madam, the most inexplicable character um, there. But yes, we'll get to that. So Carmen, the woman, <laughs> to seek the three amigos to get their help. Um, is set up as kind of a love interest for Steve Martin, and when El Guapo rides away from Santo Poco, he takes Carmen with her. Um, with him. With him. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so it's his birthday celebration, and the amigos are attempting to sneak into the compound and abscond with Carmen. Mm-hmm. Um, so they murder a man. <laughs> um, or che- Chevy murders a man. Steve Martin tells him to throw a rock, just meaning like in the distance to like make him look mm. out there away from the wall, and he just chucks it at his head, and he falls off this fifty foot wall, presumably yep. to his death. Yep. <laughs> mm. Okay, they sneak in. Uh, what happens? Chevy Chase ends up in a closet. Yeah. Um, Martin Short ends up hanging above the party ground. He's, his feet are stuck in a pinata, and he's hanging from the <laughs> rope that he was swinging from. And uh, Steve Martin is yeah. just waiting, right? I don't know where he is, but he's, he's just waiting somewhere. Um, no, no, no. He he swings and falls down on the ground and gets taken. That's when he gets chained up. Right. Yes. Uh, there's The German is, and his friends are there again. They're selling weapons to a guapo, which I wrote down, good luck getting weapons, <laughs> German weapons out of Germany at the height of World War One. <laughs> good point. Um, <laughs> Unless they thought Mexico was going to be an ally if they gave him weapons, maybe. I don't know. We did discuss this a little bit. Mexico was kind of involved in America's lead into joining World War I. Um, but that's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> <laughs> so, suck it, Dan Carlin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even tell you what podcast. You're psychic. Um, so this is where my notes kind of peter out. Um, yeah. So the amigos get found. <laughs> my last note. <laughs> suddenly happy. Um, no, not not happy. Oh, suddenly creepy. <laughs> my my next to last note after Steve Martin's physical comedy is fantastic was suddenly rapey TM. Um, <laughs> so, and then after that, I just stopped taking notes, which I mean, it's kind of a good sign because it means I was kind of absorbed in the plot. And yeah, I wasn't really yeah. thinking about things. So I'm at a perspective. So the amigos get caught, or Steve Martin gets caught. He's chained up, which is where we had that great bit of physical comedy that Justin yes. was talking about. Yes. Um, Chevy Chase finds Carmen. Um, and okay, okay, back to how useless Dusty is. Yes. So, again, 
Uh, oh yeah. Steve Martin breaks out of jail. He's like useful in the shootout. Uh, Ned again, stone cold badass. Chevy Chase gets out, like he lands in the closet, hides from a guard. Carmen lets him know it's clear. They walk out. The guard's asleep. All he has to do is bonk the guy on the head. You already murdered somebody with a rock. He can't yep. bring himself to pistol whip the guy. Carmen has to do it. Because he does nothing else for the rest of the movie until the end. Yep. Yep. They head outside. Carmen goes to get the horses. Um, Chevy Chase gets caught. At that point, the pinata that Martin's Martin Short's feet were in breaks and he lands on the table and El Guapo says one of my favorite lines in the movie are gringos falling from the sky <laughs> to which Jefe responds yes El Guapo <laughs> <laughs> so they get on the horses no no first we have the shootout turns out the German is a big fan of Ned's he even flies the same plane that Ned flew right this little tangent yeah and in one of his earlier movies um and so they, they have a little shootout ned wins um because he the, is that fast yeah he's that fast um <laughs> good for him they hop on the horses they've got carmen they head back to santa poco but a guapo and his men are obviously after them um and then we pull a what is it a spartacus is that what you called it? Yeah, I, I said it was kind of a Spartacus moment because they all dress up like the three amigos and the, so they confuse the bad guys. The, yeah, they head back to Santa Poco and they try to set up a defense and they say, what is your town good at? And they say, sewing. Which, I feel, that is kind of a common trope, I feel like, in these types of scenarios is the, the, the little backwoods town that the heroes have to set up their last defense in and be like, what are you good at? And it doesn't seem like it would yeah, be anything useful. Yeah, it's a little useful. modest thing, but then it but turned then it out to save the day. Yeah, right. so they sew a bunch of Amigos costumes, and they dress up every person in the town as the Amigos. And so it makes the El Guapo's men feel like they're outnumbered, um, and El Guapo dies. Um, and the Amigos win, and they ride off into the sunset, presumably to keep doing what they're doing. I like the. Uh, I don't know what they're gonna they do. They don't at go the back end. to their their old life. They don't go back to Hollywood. Yeah, are they gonna still be actors, or are they just gonna go around fighting gang members? I think they became vigilantes. Yeah, yeah. they're vigilantes now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? Um, I did like uh, when El Guapo gets shot, and he's like, like the- "That's a good trick." <laughs> And then he calls Steve Martin over there and shoots him in the foot. He's like, ah, that was also a good trick. <laughs> That's also very Looney Tunes. Yeah. <laughs> this actually was. Yeah, it was Like you said, bit. literally the second half of this movie is just straight Looney Tunes. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Also, Steve Martin caught two bullets in that movie. Barely, barely reacted. I know. <laughs> Not even mistaken for badass at this point. He just was a badass, apparently. Um, a little, my, my last note was, I love the chickens everywhere. <laughs> I know every scene that's in Mexico, there's just kind of random chickens in every shot. They're just all yeah, it's like when they drop the yellow filter over every every country that's supposed to be like a third world country. So I'm not sure if I saw this right. Our fans can comment and let me know. Uh, There's a scene, uh, it's during the final shootout where they're hitting stuff around the town. I think they hit a like pot of water, and when it shatters, there's a chicken in it. <laughs> I need. To, I will go back and find that clip. I, 
but yeah. either there was a chicken in it um, or like the chicken was standing on the pot and then it shattered yeah i i couldn't tell if it was in uh, on or near but it looked like to me it looked like it that's was true there was kind of an inordinate amount of chickens yeah they're just like eh, we're in row next to just, just throw some chickens in there yeah just, there are there's some there's some uh um some uh what we would now call problematic vibes i will say this movie is not as racist as it could have that been is, for a movie made in 1986 much worse <laughs> there were there was a surprising lack of moments that made me go yes <laughs> right i did it's actually funny okay so in my notes like one of the first yes the first thing i wrote down was first they could afford to hire an awful lot of mexican actors for the extras but none of the three main guys could be latino double question marks then i went back and added it's supposed to be 1916 so i guess i'll allow yeah, it there were american like, actors there were no latinos i guess it was Hollywood. i guess i'll allow it because they were silent movie actors and it was the early 20th century and they were just doing whatever i did think it was a little funny though because it was you know kind of really obviously playing into the white savior trope um which fortunately galaxy quest manages to not do um but um does it skirt that just because all the aliens i was are gonna white? say it just it basically just skirts that because they're like okay all the aliens are white even though they're a, a different you know species but um mm, thank you yeah. <laughs> Once again, we'll get to that. But um, I, it, mm, I hesitate to even have that much of a problem with it because it's so obviously like meant to be ridiculous and kind of a parody of that kind of story, I guess. Like, uh, I guess if it was more straightforward, like Galaxy Quest kind of is, then I would have to take issue with the, the White Savior narrative. But it's obviously meant to be kind of a joke on the whole the whole trope to begin with, sort of. Yeah. So it's like, okay, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> um, but, um, right. you know, yeah. You guys have anything else to say about The Three Amigos before we take a short break? Any final thoughts? Um, what, yeah, what were our general impressions in the movie? Did we like it? Did we not like it? Um, I always enjoy it far more than I think I will. Like, it's not amazing, <laughs> but it makes me laugh more than most comedies do. Yeah, yeah. Justin. Yeah, it was a uh, it was refreshing on rewatch. Um, it, it's just one of those movies once again that like I you're aware of your entire life. Uh, well, I was anyway. Um, and just I have a fond memory of watching it one time when I was a kid with my dad, and just knowing that it held up to my foggy childhood Mountain Dew memories. Uh, <laughs> it's it was nice. Um, I I enjoy it. I. Once again, I think it is very, very slapsticky and Looney Tunes, and there, there's not really a lot to take seriously there. But it's also extremely aware of that. It's not trying to take itself seriously, um, and uh, I would say it's worth watching just for the comedic talents of uh, Steve Martin, extremely Martin Short, a lot too, and I guess Chevy Chase kind of. <laughs> um, I wrote a note specifically in there that said Chevy Chase not that funny. Yeah, but they didn't. Give I don't him that know much specifically with, what honestly. it was in reference to, but yeah, I wrote it, it. They just didn't know what to do with this character. I think. Um, yeah, and just Steve Martin and Martin Short, those two together. I mean, those two separately, comedy dynamite. Put them together, and just their natural energy. It's hard. 
for someone to match because I feel like Chevy Chase's comedy style is a little more well it's a lot more subdued than those two so yeah yeah they were very they were a little they, they were flamboyant I, in their in their comedy style it was very physical it was very you know hyper expressive exactly Steve exactly. Martin likes to yell a lot <laughs> yes yes and, and so does Martin yeah. Short um but um I enjoyed it I think it, it is I will say I do think it's very funny um, if you are looking for something to just like kind of not really pay that much attention to, but just be kind of generally entertained by, it is is very good for that. Um, like I said, uh, Steve Martin being the main selling point, unsurprisingly, I mean, he's the main character, but his uh, his physical comedy, his line delivery is just perfect um, without fail. So, yeah. I mean, it's all right. It's all right. And with that, we'll be back after the break. Hi everyone, Justin here. Thank you so much for checking out our show. You may notice some audio issues during these early episodes as we're recording them in separate locations during quarantine. It is our intention to record in person once it's safe, but for now, we work with what we have. Please follow the recommended guidelines, wear your masks, stay safe, and enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, folks, we are back from break. Thanks for sticking around with us. Uh, in our second half, we are going to cover the movie Galaxy Quest from 1999. Justin, do you have any information for us? Yes, uh, the IMDb quick shot summary, which I'm trademarking, uh, is <laughs> the alumni cast of the space opera television series have to play their roles as the real thing when an alien race needs their help. However, they also have to defend both Earth and the alien race from a reptilian overlord. And boy, does his CGI look great. Uh, <laughs> the movie was directed by Dean Parasot and stars Tim Allen as Jason Nesmith, Sigourney Weaver as Gwen DeMarco, Alan Rickman as Alexander Dane, Tony Shalhoub as Fred Kwan, Sam Rockwell as Guy Fleegman, and Daryl Mitchell as Tommy Weber, as well as a great ensemble cast of aliens and con attendees, including the first film roles for both Rain Wilson and Justin Long. Oh, that was really? his first both one. of them? Yes. We were talking about that. Um, we mentioned both of them, and also um, Sam Lloyd is, has an appearance as one of the aliens, but in like a background in one scene. Sam Lloyd being Christopher Lloyd's uh, nephew, who was famous for playing the lawyer Ted on Scrubs, who recently passed away. R.I.P. Yes. But yes, a fantastic ensemble cast. I was blown away. Um, so I guess we'll get into how we know this movie. Um, I've seen bits and pieces of this movie throughout my life at different times. This is the first time I've sat down to watch the entire thing. And I just kept being surprised of, oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's that guy. It was, it's just... I really enjoyed this movie more so than I thought I would. Yeah, I've had about the same experience as Justin, just kind of like catching bits and pieces of it here and there. Um, you know, I've never seen a single second of it. I, I don't know how I've managed to avoid it, but I... I hmm. never, <laughs> never seen anything of it, ever. So pretty so, much fresh eyes for everybody, then. Yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> so it's very clearly um, loosely, like, supposed to be about the main actors from the original Star Trek series in the yes. 70s who were famously bitter about it for years 
um, until, you know, some, sometime like the last 15 years, most of them seem to have turned around and are kind of like much more lighthearted and friendly about it now, like they're doing con appearances again and stuff. Um, but I guess in 99, when this came out, that's kind of what they were known for was, you know, tired of being pigeonholed as the Star Trek actors. That's fair. Um, and making if a I'm, lot of con appearances. If I'm not mistaken, again, the internet can correct me. Um, I can't remember if it was Leonard Nimoy or William Shatner. One of them said this movie actually brought that around for them. Um, wow. Them accept it. That's cool. Um, you know, there was also um, um, some quotes from, I can't believe I didn't look this up, from the the actors of The Next Generation, who um, I think, you know, who's the guy with the beard on TNG? Okay, uh, I'm out Riker? of here. Are you talking about? I didn't, yes, Riker. Um, oh my God, what is his name? Watching Star Trek. Yeah, I haven't seen um, it. So the guy who played Riker convinced like the whole crew. Jonathan to Frakes. Yeah, Jonathan Frakes convinced the whole crew to go see Galaxy Quest. Oh. And they all loved it. And um, um, Picard, enter name here. We all know him. Jean-Luc Picard? Yes. Patrick Stewart. Oh, oh, Patrick. <laughs> yes. yes. I was just saying his um, yeah. He, I think he was actually a little angry, not like at the movie, but because that was the movie that they didn't get to make. Um, <laughs> the, like the movie that like, yeah. he thought they deserved. Um, but apparently they all, they all loved it. And um, I think it's a great movie. Yeah, I could see how it could kind of contextualize that for them a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's cool. All right, um, so just walking through the plot here, uh, we open at a convention for the show Galaxy Quest, um, which, as Caleb said, is a very, very obvious allegory for Star Trek. Um, and we get a plot point here right off the bat that they air part one of a two-parter. Ah, yes, but not part two, which was either never filmed or never aired, and even so, and that comes up later. Because the actors don't even know what was in part two. Um, anyway, continue. Um, everyone is waiting for Tim Allen's character to show up. He apparently has a reputation for being kind of a dick and showing up late, just kind of doing whatever he wants. Yeah, he is our um, he is our William Shatner. Yes, <laughs> in many ways, yes. Um, so William Shatner also arrested for uh, shuttling coke. <laughs> No. <laughs> Sorry, that was a low blow. Oh, Tim. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Tim. Oh. Um, <laughs> before Tim Allen's character shows up, we have the other actors kind of lamenting uh, their careers and where they've gone. Um, Alan Rickman's character is very upset that he, A, didn't get the spotlight in the series, uh, B, hates Tim Allen's character for showboating, and C, just really feels uh, empty as an actor, he doesn't feel like he got the right. role he deserved. He used to, yeah, he used to strut the boards, you know. Exactly. <laughs> right. um, Alan Rickman was uh, perfect casting for that role. Alan Rickman was perfect casting in every single thing that he was in. I love that. That's also true. <laughs> um, Sigourney Weaver's character makes a great point about the women uh, in Star Trek being very, very hypersexualized. Uh, yeah. They are <laughs> which, there. For Kirk to get his groove on. I guess I'll make this point now. Uh, she makes that point, like a strong point, that she doesn't want to be viewed like that. 
Uh, and then <laughs> in the back half of the movie, her <laughs> boobs are just out the whole time. <laughs> Probably the only time that's ever happened in one of Sigourney Weaver's roles. I can't think of another time I've ever seen I was going to say, I almost have to think this was supposed to be kind of a meta joke about Sigourney Weaver actually. Well, okay, let's back up. I was about to say... I was going to say generally in her iconic roles, she wasn't, she was deliberately like not sexualized. Like we all know Ripley in Alien and so forth and so on. But then I thought of Ghostbusters and... She wasn't, I wouldn't say she was really sexual. She was made an object of, like that she was the thing for the hero to attain, but I wouldn't say she was really sexual. Okay, I was thinking more of when she's being possessed by the demon. Even then, it's still tamed by 80s movie standards. Yes. I'm sure we'll talk about Ghostbusters eventually, but I just want to bring up the fact that the whole gatekeeper keymaster thing, I never realized that was a sex joke until I was like 18 watching it. I was like, oh, oh, I get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, back to Galaxy Quest. (laughs) Um, Tim Allen shows up. They do their very, very quick panel. He's very showboaty. Doesn't let anyone else really get the spotlight. Uh, Then they're at a signing table where all the nerds are coming up. Um, Poor Alan Rickman. Uh, His fans keep wanting to quote uh, his character's famous line, uh, which I did not write down. Does anyone have that? I grabbed Thor's hammer. I don't know the rest of it. <laughs> that line. Something, something, you will be avenged. Right. No, it's just that, yeah, what he says to the, the little by guy. By Grabthor's hammer, by the su- sons of Morvan, or oh, something gosh, like that, yeah. you will be avenged. You will be avenged. <laughs> so he's not having any of it. Uh, Tim Allen keeps showboating, then he has to go take a leak where he is, uh, he overhears two just of the worst people ever. Yeah, I have a note that just says, uh, fuck those guys. Yeah, they were not very nice. <laughs> Um, so they make him feel bad about his career choices. So of course he does what any of us would do. He goes home and drinks himself into a stupor. Oh yeah, I would do that for sure. Um, before he leaves the convention though, he is confronted with what he thinks are a group of fans coming up wanting to reenact a fan script with him. Right, Uh, because they are wearing Galaxy Quest uniforms. Yes. And he has a habit of doing work on the side where people hire him to, like, come play his character in, like, cardboard sets in their basements. Yes. Creepy. I mean, good know. side hustle. Good side hustle. Do. I'm sure it pays well. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes home, drinks himself into a stupor, passes out, wakes up very, very, very hungover uh, with a knock. Did they even knock on the door? I think they just knocked on his window. Yeah, they were standing at his window, like, on his back patio. They don't know how doors work. Um, and he sees those same, that same group of people, he talks to them, he decides, what the hell, what do I have going for me? So he goes with them, uh, in their limo, which is actually a spaceship. What'd you say? Was the limo a spaceship, or is it just... No, 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 no. The limo got sucked up into the spaceship. Okay, okay. So there... Um, there, he thinks he's on a very elaborate set um he thinks this because while the limo got transported into space he was taking a hangover nap something we are all all too familiar we've all been there yeah (laughs) he's like wow it's not even made of plywood (laughs) (laughs) i asked if uh if they have pages for him or if we or if they want him to just wing it they don't seem to understand what that means so he just goes on and there he is confronted with their alien warlord whose name is Ceres. Ah, I, I, Robin Sachs. 
Side note, I hate his head legs. Head legs? <laughs> the man has crab legs coming out of his head, Stephanie. Oof. The man looks like a bad reboot villain. <laughs> uh, side note, neither of us watched reboot. Wait, oh, wait, well, reboot? it looks like that. Wait, what's that? It's uh, a... It's the ugliest TV show you've ever seen. Oh, sure. <laughs> sorry to reboot fans. <laughs> sorry to, to the reboot fan listening. I yeah, the reboot fan. <laughs> you and Justin can get together and have a good time. I don't. I don't know. So it's a I'll surprisingly take... big community. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was pretty ugly, but I feel like that was by design. I liked his earring. It was cool. Um. So there. I don't. I, oh. I'm sorry. The head legs thing. <laughs> John Carpenter reminiscent. It's like the, oh, the, the it's like right? the head in the thing, you know, when it's like upside down and it sprouts the legs out oh. and it starts walking. Oh, yeah. That's what it reminded me of. Mm. Sorry. He looks like you took all of the characters in a bug's life and just like mashed them together. Oh <laughs> yeah. my god, we were talking about bugs. Yep. We'll get to we'll, bugs life. We'll later. get there. <laughs> um side note, the um the Thermians, the aliens who came to ask him for help. Thermians, yeah. Um I love the ridiculous little accent that they have. God, the accent. Just, mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's very sensitive. Yeah. I don't know whose choice that was. Right. They were very uh, British butler, but like <laughs> that was their whole thing. I and I don't know who plays the main, the head thermium. What was, was his name? Matt. Ma- Ma- Mathisar. Yeah. Reminds me of. <laughs> reminds me of Agent Coulson. I don't know why. What? <laughs> Just How? imagine Agent Coulson going up to like Iron Man, <laughs> being like, mm, "Shield me, Joel." <laughs> uh, he is played by Enrico uh, Colantoni, um, whose top four IMDb known for is our Galaxy Quest, Veronica Mars, AI, artificial intelligence, and the Veronica Mars movie. Huh. I'm okay. not super familiar with his other work, but I like the guy. Yeah, right. yeah he, I mean, he did a good job. Oh. So, we meet back Sarah. to it. Uh, we meet Saris. Uh, Tim, Tim Allen still... still joke, or still thinks he's playing character. Comments on how life-like <laughs> he looks, which is funny, because boy, has that aged. Um, I thought it didn't look bad. They're clear, the aliens were clearly practical effects. I don't. They weren't CGI. Which I did appreciate. The rock monster is a little silly, yeah. and so are the little... Uh, I don't even know what they're called. The little, the little Google Gobbles, I'm gonna call them. Like the the Google Gobbles? Uh, <laughs> Do we know what their name actually was? I, I don't remember. They're probably. I don't think they were given a name. Oh, yeah. Little Google Gobbles. Um, so... Tim Allen ignites an intergalactic war uh, with Ceres by doing some hand-wavy sci-fi hero stuff and blasting them uh, with laser cannons, and then he is sent on his way. He thinks he has a job well done. Apparently the Thermians never thought of firing their guns before. (laughs) (laughs) They built these weapons, and not once did they, like deign to shoot them at the bad guys I, killing yeah, <laughs> anyway which, which is funny you would think if they were watching all the episodes of galaxy quest uh yes. that would be like their number one thing they would try to emulate those historical yeah. battle yeah. strategies but mm-hmm. yep i digress um, <laughs> if tim allen gets launched into space and through a wormhole with nothing but like a layer of 
Flubber. It's Flubber. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Right. I, I was going to say have a note. He's, right. he's covered in a layer of Do, flex seal. See, that was a great moment, too, because that's, like, it's basically all concentrated in that moment is when he realizes that it's real. Like, it's quite literalized because these doors open and this 2001 A Space Odyssey music starts playing. <laughs> in the background where he's just, like, seeing the vastness of the cosmos. <laughs> And then he's like, oh, that's different. And then he just gets launched, launched into a wormhole in the middle yeah, of exactly. They call it a black hole. But anytime I see something to be like that that sends you to another space yeah, in sci-fi, I call it a wormhole. Okay? That's <laughs> yeah. fair. Wormhole sends you somewhere else. Black hole does not. No, I don't right, know right. what it was about the animation style of that blue goo, but that that and I just associate that and Flubber, and I know there's a few other 90s movies that use it. I just associate that aesthetic with the 90s so much. I can tell you what year it came out based on your CGI goo. Time period. Yeah. That was the best they could do. <laughs> God help them. <laughs> okay. So he uh, makes it back to Earth. Right. He makes it back to Earth. He is on his uh, patio. A changed man, uh, a man who sees hope. Um, he feels like he's actually doing something with his life now. So he goes to uh, a Galaxy Quest appearance at a it wasn't a car dealership. What was no, it? It's a mega market. It's like a superstore. Yeah. So Open they're doing a uh, Tiffany, what was the line? <laughs> okay. So I laughed so hard when when Alan Rickman, who uh, God help me, I don't I don't remember his character's name. It's okay. Um he, they're having to introduce like this big sales event at this store and he clearly like hates his life and wants to die and like and like Sigourney Weaver like nudges him she's like okay it's your turn to say the promo line and he's like by grub thor's hammer <laughs> what a savings because <laughs> he has to like sell it like that and it, his uh loathing is palpable and it's great um but, so that was really fun because it like it really shows their uh to say the least uh, their disillusionment with their current lot in life so whether or not they know it they're kind of they're wishing for something more you know which is sort of i think kind of a little standby in these type uh in the with uh, words with this trope like the heroes have to be kind of lacking something because they have to want that that mm-hmm. that life that is afforded to them by they, they enjoy their the, heroism. The, the life of playing a hero and being rich right and stuff. exactly but given the opportunity to actually be heroes so like you know yeah, what yeah hesitate. like yeah Right. It's it's enabling them to discover um, true heroism, which I, I think is cool. I think that's kind of something that we see in both of these. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> because as of as of, you know, this part in Act One, they're clearly not very happy with where they are. Um and obviously, Alan Rick, is like, yeah. he wants to play a he's genuine role. Miserable. Right. He he's the most miserable um, out of all of them. Um, and Tim Allen shows up with the call to action. Yeah, he shows up at the event. Tim Allen shows up at the event to try and convince them to join him. Right. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. Um, I do want to say the the call to action. Um, and Three Amigos, it just seemed like they thought they were making a lateral move, like they were just going to do another entertainment gig, and then it's kind of yeah. thrust upon them. Right. Um, I like uh, how different they are in that in Galaxy Quest. Um, it starts with Tim Allen kind of doing that same thing, 
but he realizes it's real much sooner in the story than the amigos yeah. do and that like fuels him not because of a sense of duty like it, uh, the three amigos have um when they've ruined that village but because it's like he feels like he's doing something for the first time it's not really out of sympathy for the aliens it's like yeah fueling him up right he he feels like yeah, he feels useful. He feels like he's earning, I guess, that kind of status. Yeah. So they say no. They get in a van to right. leave. And then they all realize this is a paid gig. We're not doing anything else. Whatever. Let's just go. Let's say, yeah. um, they follow him to humor him. Um, oh, before we, uh, before this happens, or as... As Tim Allen is leaving to go back up to, to, to go help the aliens, the Thermians, um, we have one of my least favorite tropes in cinema, uh -uh. the mix-up, mm. where he bumps into one of the nerds from the convention and drops the communicator that the aliens gave him, which is real, and it gets mixed up with the toy communicator Aww. that the convention goer had. Yeah. Fortunately, it didn't end up causing like a major issue. It did, his, We don't even, at some point, Tim Allen's Timon gets a real communicator back and it's never a problem. I expected it to be like a big problem. He, he yeah. needs help and he pulls out his communicator and it's a toy and he finds out he's by himself. I thought no. for certain when he was stranded. Yep. Uh, yeah, was actually, he wasn't gonna be we able never to see him. Anything. We never see him realize that the one he picked up was fake. Like yeah. he tries to use it when he's talking to the other right. actors, but it doesn't I don't think it it wasn't clear if he realized then that he had mixed it up. Well, now it's kind of um, odd then. So why? I'm, yeah, I know. I'm I just... waited. For, I waited so long for that to pay off, and I was getting mad until in the climax. Um, I'm gonna call all this trope "fumble ex machina." Yeah. <laughs> it ends up being an ultimately good thing because 99 percent of the time, the mix-up trope ends up being something really bad and really annoying and stupid, and I hate it. And we're moving on. <laughs> the actors leave the van, they go to uh, this little warehouse. Um, they realize they're talking to a hologram of one of the Thermians, and that's when they're like, oh crap, this is real, and they get yes. up to the ship. Um, and they're all frozen in silence and horror when they're approached by three Lovecraftian horrors. <laughs> um, Sam they Rockwell kills me. What? <laughs> Sam Rockwell kills me in that scene. Yes. I, okay. <laughs> right off the bat, I love Sam Rockwell. And I love Tony Shalhoub. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then it turns out these hideous monstrosities are the Thermians without their... Um, they put up a front. They have a, like created technological disguises mm -hmm. to present themselves to the humans, to look human-like. Mm -hmm. Um then we get the tour of the ship and we meet Saris again. And this right. time he's got a cool, cool metal eye patch. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, they're brought back on to the ship to negotiate a surrender is what they're told. Um, turns out it's just all out war. Um, <laughs> also, yeah. important note, um, the ship that uh, the place that they digitize into is like a uh, starport. The ship they get on is a one-to-one -one replica of the ship from their series. Right. I right, don't know if we talked the about this, thing. but the Thermians' entire society, they they lost 
they lost their culture somehow, probably as a result of uh, Ceres's people, their war. Mm -hmm. um, and so their entire culture, their entire society has been around. Um, they, they received the transmissions of the original airings of the Galaxy Quest TV show. And so their entire society is built around recreating this show. Um, and so all of the fake technologies mentioned on the show and on, that are on the ship are all things that this highly, highly intelligent advanced society have been able to recreate, even though they're fictional on Earth. Um, right, which uh, ends up being a big basis for the stuff they do right. later on. And that's why they came to the Galaxy Quest crew for help, because they think it's all it's all real. Right. It's not just Galaxy Quest. Do they think all TV shows are historical? <laughs> <Right. laughs> I love the Gilligan's Island jokes. Because they think... people. Exactly. Um. <laughs> right, because they have no way of knowing that it's not real. They don't, and, and that's actually drawn attention to. Um, did I say that? Is that grammatically correct? The okay. <laughs> attention is drawn to that. Um, that they don't really understand. Yeah, it's acting. A, it's, it's a plot like, point in like right. Act Three that their society does not have the concept of lying. Yes. Right. Therefore, they do not have the concept of acting, which is lying for entertainment purposes. <laughs> Yeah, um. that's what we do. Um, yeah, which is funny because when we first watched uh, Three Amigos, I actually kind of initially wrote that down before I really understood what was going on. I was like, these people don't understand what the cost, uh, the concept of a movie is, apparently. Uh, but then it, it, as it become, became clear that it was the year 1916, 16. I was like, okay, that, that's fair. They, they might not actually know the concept of a movie. But here, it, they they actually don't know the concept of a movie, um, and attention is drawn to that. So that's kind of interesting because it it's basically positioning them as like they they can't even conceive of this being fake. Like it has to be real. Right. I guess they don't grow up playing pretend as kids. I guess not. No. That makes when um, Malazar Malthazar, what is his name? Malthazar. When he's like on his what we're led to believe is his deathbed and Tim Allen has to like explain to him what pretend is and then has to explain that yeah. they're lying. Mm -hmm. Like the last thing we're led to believe this creature is going to experience is learning what a lie is. Which, which the only, no, they, they have a concept yeah. of it. And, but the only reason they know that is because it's what their enemy does. That's true. He's like, uh, that the, you guys have traits in common with Saris. Like, no. Right. Saris will tell them that he'll be peaceful and then slaughter them. So the only concept he has of untruth is through their mortal enemy. And then he finds out that this man that they believe to be their hero was being untruthful to them. Right, um, right. <clears throat> and that's, you know, part of the breaking the illusion, which has to happen with this trope. Yeah. Unfortunately, we are a little ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's back Dialing up. Dialing it back. So they're on the ship. Um, they are all assigned to their stations that they had on the show. Um, which leads to a scene that I thought was funny, and then I thought it went on for too long, and then I found it funny again, and that's when the ship is rubbing up against the side of the space. Yeah. Um, because he doesn't know how to pilot a spaceship. <laughs> uh, so then, later on, he has to go and study his own hand movements on the TV show to become a better pilot. Right. <laughs> Everything is based after what they did in the show. Uh, specifically their hand motions that comes around with the uh, digitizer uh, as well. Yeah. Um, very interesting. So they're on the ship. They're in space. Everyone's amazed until 
boom, Cyrus again. Um, they exchange some words, and then we get the first big space battle of the uh, of the movie, which leads to a very Star Wars esque chase through uh, yeah. instead of an asteroid field, it's a minefield left over from an ancient space war. Well, the the lead up to that chase is actually pretty funny when um, he. Tim Allen realizes that he's actually talking to a real space warlord that is actually going to kill him. And um, he gives Sigourney Weaver the uh, the hand at the throat, the kill it, cut it off yeah. message. And Sigourney Weaver doesn't kill the transmission. Tim Allen, uh, you know, says some insults about the villains, uh, calls them ugly and st- stupid and tells them to fire all the weapons, blah, blah, blah. And the villain heard all of it because Sigourney Weaver didn't kill it because Tim Allen was like, I gave you the kill, yeah. I gave you the kill the transmission signal. And she was like, I thought you were giving us the giving the we're dead signal. And I was agreeing with you. <laughs> um, I also like as they're being chased and things are exploding around them. Um, she yells what's on the computer screen, which was her main complaint. Um, right. That was her only job on the ship, was to repeat the computer. And, and she, she yelled it, and then she's like, I'm actually repeating what it says! <laughs> Later on, they have a, a, a little meeting where, like, she's the only one who communicates with the computer for some reason. Like, Tim Allen will ask a question, and then she'll repeat the question, but to the computer. Yeah. And then the computer will answer, and she'll re- repeat what the computer said. And the guy who was the pilot was like, why are you doing that? We can hear it. And she like, was like, I have one job. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And I am going to do it well. <laughs> Good for her. She's owning it. <laughs> so they fly through a minefield. They, the ship is blown up. Their fuel source, the beryllium, beryllium sphere, beryllium the sphere beryllium. is cracked. So they have to land on this uh, unknown planet and go find a new one. Right, this is kind of our act two sort and, of beginning, I yeah. guess. So Maybe. Sam Rockwell's character, who we haven't really talked about before, he was a, effectively a red shirt on a single episode of the show in its yes. original run. He died before the first commercial break in episode 81. <laughs> and he um, kind of like conned his way into joining the actors at the signing table to do some signings. Um, and then ended up joining them on the adventure. So they're going down to the planet and he's freaking out because he knows... He knows that, like, he's going right. to be the one. This is where the meta perspective comes right. he in, is which as, the movie leans into, He for is, sure. as Stephanie called it, the character who is aware of the genre. Right, yes. he's genre savvy. Um, he He's the one that the movie, which is obviously very genre aware in and of itself, that's, like, the whole premise, but he's kind of the mouthpiece for that. He's... Because he's so like invested in it, he's the one who says like, "I'm the guy who's gonna get killed by the monster as soon as we land on the planet," you know. Um, and, and that's kind of his function is to sort of like lampshade those tropes. Yeah, and then he says, "You guys don't even know my his first name." First off, his first name is literally Guy. <laughs> guy, it's just Guy. <laughs> it's yeah. just Guy. And he says, "You guys don't even know my last name." <laughs> and Tim Allen's like, "Of course we know your last name. It's ah crap." <laughs> Which doesn't help. Right, it doesn't inspire confidence. He's literally a nameless guy. Yeah, he's a guy. <laughs> going right. on the mission. Exactly. As far as you know, I'm crew member number six. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, it's actually, it's kind of, it's kind of terrifying because he's realizing his, his own lack of consequence or what he perceives uh, as his own lack of consequence. Oh, um, important just 
I saw it in my notes and we didn't explain what it is. Uh, one of the main reasons Ceres is after them is because on that ship they have something called the Omega-13. Oh, yes. No one knows what it does. Which the Omega-13 right. is the plot point from that, that was introduced in the opening scene. It was a two-parter um, and they make a point of saying you guys are the first people to see this two-parter or the, this episode since its original airing because it's been lost for whatever reason. Yeah. And the episode ends with Tim Allen's character saying, activate the Omega-13, and that's it. So none of the fans know what the Omega-13 does. None of the actors know what the Omega-13 does. But the Thermians have built one, nevertheless. <laughs> um, so Ceres wants the Omega-13. Yes. Um, so anyway, we're on the they're on this planet. Uh, this is where we meet the adorably evil little Gooba Gabas as... Are they actually called that? I forget. Uh, no, I don't think they're given a name. What are they called? Yeah, I don't know. They're just little blue babies that um eat the injured, yeah. which I called. As yeah, soon as one, did. one of them started that. limping, I was like, they're going to eat them. They're going to eat them. <laughs> is it, is it like Sam Rockwell who's aware? Like, Sigourney yeah. thinks they're adorable. He, right. he, is, he was the one who, he was only in one episode. He is distance enough from the show. Right, most of the guys have tried to forget it. They don't remember what happened in what episode yet. We haven't reached that point. Um, so he's the one who's aware that, like, I've seen this show, okay? I've watched it so many times. Those things are going <laughs> to eat us. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to be evil. They look cute, but they're going to be evil. Yeah, the other one's are like, oh, they're just this little guy. They have they run a mining operation on this planet, harvesting beryllium spheres for whatever reason. Um so we see them eat one of their own, so we Which, know that they are, in fact, capable of that. That little guy was making the saddest noises, limping over to his oh. friends. Just... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my god. Um, <laughs> I was honestly, I, I felt for Sigourney Weaver's character, because she was like, oh, they're so precious. And I was like, yeah, yeah, the movie wants us to laugh at her because womanly sensibilities and all. Oh, look at the little baby aliens. But they were cute, goddammit. Like, they were cute. And then one of them gets brutally murdered by its own kind. Terrible. So, um, I don't remember what exactly happens where uh, that causes the aliens to disperse. Uh, I believe the beryllium sphere. Probably because there. they... Okay, so we're watching the aliens eat their friend. We, <laughs> yeah. we, we cut... The all of the our heroes have turned away. They're having a discussion about what do we do? Because mm. they're like, we're going to die, but also we need this thing, or else we're also going to die. Mm. Um, <laughs> so they they start to come up with a plan, and um, the pilot I don't remember his name um, says, "Hey, let's do this thing that we did in episode eighty one, which triggers Guy because he." died in episode 8. <laughs> and Tim Allen's like, no, 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 we, we met 51. We met episode 51. <laughs> and by the time they figure out a plan, they're, they're, they, so they, they split. Some of them go to be the lookout while the rest of them go to grab the Morelian Sphere and start rolling it back to the ship. Mm. And they realize that the aliens have dispersed. We're not given a reason. I'm assuming it's because the aliens figured out they were there and like, well, let's go get the rest of our crew. So the aliens are gone. And then they show up en masse. Um, so we're being chased by... They're rolling the beryllium sphere. as they're Yeah, they're in. rolling the beryllium sphere, which is probably like five feet in diameter, um, towards the tiny little ship um, while being chased by hundreds of blue demon babies. <laughs> right. um, we get back to the ship. 
And because the beryllium sphere is so big, there's not enough room for everyone. So right. Tim Allen and Alan Rickman have this argument yeah, about who yeah. gets to who gets to stay behind, <laughs> um, which is in character because this whole time Alan yeah. Rickman was bitter about him being it's the like, showboater. Get the spotlight. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always about you, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> right. So Tim Allen jumps off, and the ship flies off without him, and he falls unconscious. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not and unconscious he, yet. He gets knocked out. Oh, right. right. Yeah, they're, By they're the just, alien saying, let's hit him with a rock. Yeah, they're like, we rock. should eat him. Let's hit him with a rock. So they <laughs> knock him unconscious. The rest of the crew makes it back to the ship unharmed. He wakes up with a pig lizard sniffing at his face. Yeah. Um, the crew is standing at, what, are the, what do they call it, Justin? The digitizer? It's something like that. It's It's the... Digital we'll call it the digital. We'll it's call like the way you used to beam them up. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's the, the beam me up, Scotty, which Star Trek right, fans right. are going to murder me for not knowing the name of the machine. I am sorry. I apologize. I have nothing against Star Trek. I just didn't grow up watching it. No. I didn't mention this earlier, but I feel like watching classic Star Trek is... It's it's in the same category as people who watch classic Doctor Who. You had to grow up watching it with your dad, who was a huge nerd, or you don't. Or it's much more yeah. difficult to enjoy as an adult. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying it's bad. Moving on. I don't. <laughs> I'm moving on from this tangent. Right. So, there's the pig lizard. It's like four feet tall. It's a little person yeah, in a rubber fine. suit. Um, and Quan. Uh, 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 Tony Shalhoub's character, who has been totally Tony Shalhoub, has been unfazed throughout. Yeah, all I of like this. his character. He has been, That's like the he whole has point. been just super chill. Like he had some doobies hidden in his pocket or something <laughs> when they went up. Um, or the third. Even that turtle man just vibing. Yeah, vibing yeah, he was... that, Yeah, him and the turtle get along great. He was just vibing with Tony and the turtle. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a great morning show. Exactly. <laughs> And so he's the one who would work the digitizer. Yeah. The therm- they're all worried. I was the, the Thermians make a point of saying that it is based around the human's biology or human's anatomy. Yeah, so it's it's untested. So not how it's gonna work. They beam up the pig lizard that Tim Allen is fighting. And yeah. it's inside out. Yeah. So they're all like, oh God, we're yeah. gonna beam up Tim Allen and he's gonna be dead he's and inside, be inside out. out. <laughs> but they they're, they're he, saying this out loud. And Tim Allen can hear them over the communicator, and they're trying oh, to they're trying right. to like play it off. But then the uh, the Thermian is like, "Ooh!" and he exploded. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "He what now?" Like, and then, while we're debating on uh, how, if we're going to digitize him up, it turns out so the aliens were chanting the name of this thing, and it turns out the little pig lizard was not the thing they were chanting. Turns out it's a rock monster. It looks like the things from uh, Breath of the Wild. Oh, the taluses? Yeah. I was thinking it looked like the thing from that one episode of Futurama, the really bad one about the genderless oh, rock thing where it swaps no. their genders. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so Tim Allen's getting attacked by this rock thing. And then Tony Schlub, his confidence breaks, and Tim Allen has to give him a speech. 
Right, and this is the first him. time we've seen his confidence break because he usually seems pretty chill, but then he's suddenly like, no, I can't do it. Well, up to this point, he's just kind of been repeating what the Thermians have yeah. told him. <laughs> they, when they would like beam down to engineering, he'd be like, hey, they told me that the generators <laughs> aren't going to take it. <laughs> right, but then he's inspired by love. Yeah, that's true, because Tony Shalhoub is having a thing with one of the Thermians. Yeah, it's very low-key. It's going on in the background. But, and... yeah, so Tim Allen gives him a heroic speech. He believes in him, blah, blah, blah. They beam him up. We're back on track. The, the core is fixed. The ship has power. We're ready to go kick kick some alien butt. Right? Did I miss anything, Justin? No, Maybe. that's pretty much it. Okay, yeah. we're, we're being much more thorough about this than we were about the three <laughs> Actually, to be fair, this has a lot more separate plot points yeah. than the three amigos did. This movie in general is more, they're roughly the same length. The length is only like four minutes, but Galaxy Quest has a lot more going for it. I have a note that I said uh, Galaxy Quest is much more of a movie. Right. And yes. that, I mean, Not an three amigos is a vehicle for those three comedic powerhouses to like do bits for two hours. This is like a story. (laughs) You're right. Yes. Um, We'll finish up our galaxy quest discussion and then we'll get to that. Let's there's not that much more to get to really. So let's get to the third act. Justin. So Tim Allen's back on the ship. Um, They have their beryllium. Everything's ready to go. Uh, This scene is also where we find out that um, the Thermians that are on the ship are the only ones left. The rest of their race has been obliterated by Ceres and his army. Um, right, because the spaceport we were on was this is actually a cool design aspect. The spaceport that they launched from is like what was left of their planet. It was this conical shard with like the surface was at the top, and the spaceport was the, all the rock underneath. And after they left, um, Ceres and his forces went and blew it up. That's a. It, this movie is very good at hiding, like, actually pretty rad sci fi concepts in this funny, like, little hand wavy comedy package. But yeah, it's, 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 it's like a meta comedy commentary on this, but it's also, it's, it's, it's also an homage. So it's, it's loving. loving. Yeah. It's not entirely trying to tear it down, it's trying to, yeah. like, take these things the classic Trek didn't have the budget or the technology to do and, like, actually try and tell. A classic Trek story within the trappings of a meta-analysis of like the actors' lives. I bet somewhere down the line, uh, this movie was more of a like straight sci-fi, and just as it was going through production uh, for legal reasons, became more of its own <laughs> homage you know, type thing. I think on um, I, th- I think I learned this on Adam Savage's Still Untitled podcast, but um. The during the production of like the ship um, and set designs and stuff, the designers um, consulted with lawyers to make sure that the ship was dissimilar enough from the Enterprise to like so that they wouldn't get sued or couldn't be sued. We gotta puppy. we gotta pause because Apollo wouldn't shut up. Could you hear him? Yeah. He has to go out. I guess I'll repeat all of that because he kept whining that I'm entire sorry. time. All right, yeah, um, I just pause the recording. Out. We'll take him out, and right. then I'll. He has resumed. So I learned 
just like a week or two ago, I think it was on Adam Savage's Still Untitled podcast, um, that during their production of uh, Galaxy Quest, the design team had to work with like a team of lawyers to make sure that the, what is it, the protector um, yeah. was dissimilar enough from the USS Enterprise so that they would not get sued. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. And that's that probably, yes. That's probably a better deal than like Mel Brooks got when he made Spaceballs because at least Galaxy Quest could sell merchandise. Right, right. <laughs> For those listeners that don't know, um, Noel Brooks asked uh, um, Lucas, George Lucas, for permission to make Spaceballs, even though I think he technically didn't need to because of fair use laws, blah, 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 it was parody. Hmm. Um, but George Lucas gave him per- free permission to rip off Star Wars however he wanted under the condition that they did not sell merchandise. Mm. George Lucas famously, his you know movie deal was that he got the profits from right. merchandising, um, which Star Wars made a ton of money off of. Hence that great scene with Spaceballs, the t-shirt, Spaceballs, the dolls, Spaceballs, the flamethrower. Spaceballs, the flamethrower. <laughs> I can't love this one. <laughs> uh, getting back to Galaxy Quest. Um, yeah. So, back on the ship. Thermians are dead. Except for the ones on the ship. Uh, and we realize that Ceres has already... Uh, did they beam there? How exactly did they get... I don't know. Who knows? They beamed there or they just like latched on onto the ship like a parasite. Yeah. Uh, so really the, after their big win with the digitizer, uh, they are yep. instantly captured um, and brought into the main, uh, main deck. Uh, main they're deck, torturing Mathazar. Um, and this is where we have the big reveal that we discussed earlier where um, Ceres, Ceres's culture is apparently like they, they watched a clip from Galaxy Quest. Yeah. Um, and apparently they understood just from watching it that it was Fake that it was like a TV show because they have the concept of lying. Right, they have the concept of lying. They're the bad so guys. Sarah says, you know, tell him, tell him the truth. Um, so Kanan reveals to Mathazar that they're actors; they're not actually heroes. They were lying. Um, the breaking then, of the illusion, and then the villains, a uh, breaking of the illusion for the not just, the heroes. It's already been broken like an act ago. Now it's right, for, right. for the people who sought their help. Right, so um, they found out. Which and is interesting then, because in Three Amigos, that kind of happened at the exact same time. Yeah, it was the, the same moment. Right. Was the um, them realizing that it wasn't a show and the people realizing that they weren't heroes. Um, but here it's kind of like, they, they already know they're not heroes. But the, um, the, the oh gosh, the, what's the, right, the Thermians don't realize it. Um, but this is kind of when they... When they find out. So then Saris tells his crew to set up the core of the ship's reactor to self-destruct, right? Yes. That, okay. And then they leave, they hightail back to their ship and leave, you know, everyone else to their fate. Um, this is, uh, he leaves without the Omega-13 because uh, Tim Allen tells him that no one knows what it does. It was just right. made up he for the show. He tells Tim Allen to tell him what it is and Tim Allen doesn't know. Um, and that's why he tortures Mathazar. Um, just he he wants to know what it does because the Thermians threatened him with it. I think like they did in the lot in that one episode, but they never fired it because they don't know what it does and they never fired it in the TV show. Yeah. So we have to shut. There's several things going on. If I am correct in my timeline, we have to shut down the core reactor from exploding. There is a uh, the what do you call it where all the soldiers sleep. Barracks? The barracks. Thank yes. you. 
the barracks, there are a bunch of Thermians trapped in the barracks with like an airlock open so that they're slowly suffocating. Yeah. Um, and then I feel like there's a third problem. Because <laughs> there were th- there were three teams, right? Yeah, there was, yeah, there was there Tim was. Allen and Sigourney Weaver. Mm-hmm. There was Alan Rickman and the Thermian who was played by the evil scientist professor from Sky High. Oh, um, who was also the voice of Pleakley, Pleakley and um, Leo sure. Stitch. That was his name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no, Kevin McDonald shows up later in the movie. No, no, you're right. You're right. He's later. I'm sorry. They look so much alike. <laughs> yeah, I I got them confused too. He is. So, so there is a Thermian that is not him. I lied. Who is very, um, that Thermian is very specifically obsessed with his character. With Alan Rickman's character. Right, right. Kevin McDonald, who I was just talking about, is he shows up as an announcer later. At the convention later. They look and sound remarkably alike. <laughs> um, I apologize to whoever played the Thermian. Um, so anyway, two teams. Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver. Then mm-hmm. Alan Rickman and the one Thermian. And then um, uh, Toby Shalhoub and... Um, Tony Shalhoub, right? T- Tony Shalhoub and uh, <laughs> Sam Rockwell, yeah, and uh, uh, Tony Shalhoub's love interest, um, mm-hmm. who they're trying to like create a distraction or something for the right. So the latter two teams are both working to try and help the Thermians in the barracks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so now we get back to the mix-up trope. Yes, because um, some of Cyrus's men. Are they still on the ship at this point? Yes, they stayed behind because they okay. shoot the guy who's with know. Alan Rickman. <laughs> yes. And they're uh, also in the control room that Tony Shalhoub and Sam Rockwell are trying to get into. Yes. Okay, so we have one team working on the airlock, one team working on the engine room, one team trying to stop the self-destruct. Yes. So this is where, like Caleb said, the communicator comes back into play. We realize that a little baby Justin Long, uh, character's name is Brandon, Right, yes. Has a working communicator and specifically said um, uh, that he has knowledge of how the ship works. Like he's a mega fan, really into the show. Has right, they have blueprints. <laughs> they have blueprints of the ship. Yeah. Accurate. Okay, so I, <laughs> my last note here, I don't have the, that many notes. Um, <laughs> I was super drunk when I wrote this, so forgive me if this is not coherent. I wrote, also, you going, okay, and then the page crinkling is going to be so good for our audience. He's got a fat stack of papers. Crinkle, crinkle. Oh, let me consult my notes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> let me consult my notes. Okay. The ancient texts! <laughs> the sacred texts. Um, okay, so I wrote, the meta experience of viewing the artifice is honored in the form of the nerds who end up helping out. <laughs> okay, so, like, <laughs> the meta experience of viewing the artifice is honored in the form of the nerds who end up helping out. I can't... Let me explain. I Let me explain. Please do. Okay. <laughs> this is why we need you. You are an integral part of this podcast because Aww. you're the person who will say something like that. My, my My last note is... Um, Hate head legs. <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, But no, I... Okay. <laughs> what I think Drunk Me was trying to say was that <laughs> the it is a commentary on... Oh, God. <laughs> 
I don't know how to. You'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) Drunk me was on some galaxy brain bullshit. That uh, mostly sober. Yeah, but galaxy galaxy quest brain. Mostly sober me is kind of struggling to piece together. But I think it's kind of like um, rather than uh, lampooning the nerds or lampooning the artifice of their heroism, Mm -hmm. instead we are invited to look at it on a meta level. Uh, because uh, <laughs> baby Justin Long is like, I know now that it's not real, you know? And then, so Tim Allen has to be like, oh, actually, uh, it is all real. And then he's like, oh, I, knew I knew it. Right. And it's it's kind of sweet because um, it's, it's affirming, you know, it's affirming of this. Of fandom. Right. It's affirming of fandom. It's affirming of the Which power of belief. Which is pretty progressive for 1999. I know, honestly. That could have been peak uh, making fun of fandom years but instead yeah it, it instead it affirms the power of belief it affirms the belief in this heroism which is we know it has been artificially constructed and yet it's become real like the act of viewing it has made it real yeah. like i guess is kind of what i was trying which is say. true for the thermians also they viewed right. it and they made it real right. they literally <laughs> made it into a physical reality which is the ultimate fans. I, I was going to say, I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is something I want to talk about when we get into talking about the mistaken for badass trope in general. Um, but I think that's kind of the charm of it is that it... Yes. <laughs> uh, someone else talk while okay. I'm right. So w- what we mean by saying all of this is Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver have to make their way through the bowels of the ship to get to the core through a maze and a bunch of booby traps. And Justin Long, who has Tim Allen's communicator from the very beginning of the movie, is also in possession of blueprints of the ship, and his friends are also knowledgeable about the subject. So they, they have get expertise in like specific areas, which is yes. very cool. Yeah, it is. He was like, "Oh, my friend knows about uh, this particular system much better than I do. Let me call him." Um, I and- love the scene where they're being chased and they hit that s- stupid uh, series of smashing. Yeah, machines and Sigourney Reaper is like, why is this here? We needed it for an episode. Well, it's badly written. (laughs) (laughs) At the very end, she's like, I hope the guy who wrote this is dead. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Sigourney Reaper really like busting out those comedy chops for this movie. She did. She did great. She has great comedy chops. (laughs) Exactly. Um. Okay. Um. So they make it to the core, they shut it down. We have another trope where it doesn't stop. The, t- the countdown to the explosion doesn't stop until it hits the number one. And she points out that it, the countdown's always, it always stopped stops at one. At one. Show. Right. I love that they're having this tender moment, like they're th- the final farewell kiss <laughs> moment. And then they realize like, oh yeah, and our stupid. All right. Of course that was gonna happen. Yeah. In, in the middle of this, going back to the first plot point that was set up, they pass under the Omega-13. Yes. Which the Thermians have posited would cause a total destruction of the universe, like on a molecular level. And Justin Long's character says, you know, some people have theorized that that's what would happen. But personally, I believe that it's, it, it is a matter rearranger, but in that it goes back in time 13 seconds. Which Tim Allen which, about is useless except to fix one single mistake. Yes. Um, to redeem to re- a single ah. You remember a lot more <laughs> Drunk Stephanie um, is like a detective. Yeah. <laughs> you know if the word redeem is in it, I'm going to be interested. <laughs> um, 
so we managed to shut down the core. We managed to um, save the Thermians and the barracks. We make our way back to the deck of the ship. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, when when the Thermians and the barracks are saved, that's when um, the Thermian, who is very obsessed with Alan Rickman's character, uh, sadly uh, gets shot and passes away, and um, Alan Rickman invigors him in death by finally accepting that quote, finally saying it. Right, and it's not just before that, or it's not just that moment, it's, uh, um, he had been constantly, that Thermian had been constantly referencing his characters. Yeah, and at first um, he was mean to him. His, yeah, like, there, no. there's a point where, like, they have to open a door to get the Thermian some mm-hmm. air, and he's like, let's chant your people's, like, strength chant. And oh, like, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll, yeah, I'm, I'll do it, you know, and he, he, that's when he first starts buying into it. And then when, when he's dying, Alan Rickman gets him the seer, sincere by Raptor's yeah. hammer by the Sons of War. Okay, I can I just you. point out one more time, once again, <laughs> the meta experience of viewing the artifice is honored in that it ends up constructing a reality in which the false hero can reframe himself as a true hero because by, by following the like the lessons of right, exactly. the false hero he was pretending to be by actually accepting those things the as person reality. who believed in him who believed that he could be a hero it, that's how he you know that's how he ends up being inspired to be one and the the filmmaking is very clear in this obviously it's it's meant to be straightforward he dies and you know they all look resolutely towards the camera because his his legacy will inspire them to you know to be heroes and but i just think it's nice how that is kind of reinforced mm-hmm. i guess over the course of the story and, and you know perhaps no more transparently than in that part where um he He's kind of, and also since he's sort of, like we said, an actor, he's very into acting as artifice. Like he views it as his craft, but this is where he kind of begins to actually buy into it mm-hmm. as like taking on the role more fully. Yeah. Um, I also, I like that this is the first time in the entire movie where Alan Rickman's real hair starts poking through <laughs> the uh, prosthetics. And I'm like, it, he kept it on even after the point that everyone on the ship knows they're phony. <laughs> like that's commitment that's commitment yeah yeah that's um, commitment. he also he starts throwing hands at cirrus's men he charges that dude without a gun and beats him down <laughs> so they, they make it back all the crew are successful in their missions we're back on the deck of the ship um we're about to head home when tony shaloub shows up on the deck uh are we am i skipping something you're skipping something. Tony Shalou, uh, that's a, that's after the big chase through the minefield again. Oh, right. We go back through uh, the minefield, but so, the heroes know how it works. Yes, all of the immediate problems are solved. They've seemingly saved the day. Um, they get back into their positions, this time fully ready to go. It's like they have become their characters. Stephanie, what, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and... So they're being chased by Cyrus again through the same minefield. This time they have a little more expertise. Um, so Tim Allen suggests that they go through the minefield, getting a little bit closer to which in true sci-fi Star Trek fashion, everyone's like, Captain, what? And then the pilot's like, I see what you're doing. Uh, <laughs> and the guy is a better pilot now. Yes. because And the captain's a better captain now. And the mines are magnetic. And so they follow the ship. 
and they, you know, pull a loop-de-loop, head back to the bad guys, pull a swerve up at the last moment, all the mines that were following the protector slam into the villain's ship and blow it up. So as they're celebrating, it's pointing out, uh, it's pointed out that something has, they got an energy pulse from Cirrus's ship. They don't know if it's anything to look into or not. They decide not to think about it. And then as Caleb was saying, Tony Shaloub appears and fucks him up. And it turns out it's Cirrus and he shoots up everyone on deck. Um, right, uh, kind of jarring. Uh, he just kills everyone. Yeah, he shoots Tim Allen and then he falls down and then he just... He, anyway, he starts blasting. Yep. And <laughs> blazing. Tim Allen crawls back to the captain's chair and realizes, remembers something. And so, so not only is everyone dying, they're also about to slam into the earth at like near light speed. The stakes have never been uh, higher. <laughs> <laughs> um, so not only are the crew about to die, but they're also about to destroy like half the earth. Um, when he activates the Omega-13, which, it turns out, does send them back 13 seconds in time. Unfortunately, does not disassemble the entire universe. Yeah. Risky move there. Yeah, that was a, that was a bold gambit. I mean, life on Earth was about to be decimate, decimated anyway. That's true. Yeah. That It was kind of a It wasn't no just nothing left situation. to lose for him and yeah. his crew. It was also for the human race. Right. Um, <laughs> And so, the rest of the universe, but, you know, neither here Yes. <laughs> so, so that sends matter. them right back in time to when Tony Shalhoub's character is coming, or Tony Shalhoub is coming up the elevator, and he walks up and just decks him and manages to stop Sarah. <laughs> and they're all like, whoa, what? But then it turns out, you know. But, yeah. Okay, so this, this is uh, something I had in my notes. Is Tim Allen somehow the only one who realizes what happened with the Omega-13. Yes, he's the one who, I think it, the way it works is like the person who activated it is the one who's aware of it. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll accept that. Otherwise, it would be pointless. Point. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fair, actually. That's true, yeah. Um, hmm. So, they stop him, um, seemingly killing him. We get a double fake out. Uh, <laughs> These movies love that. <laughs> So mm-hmm. they realize that if uh, they can't slow down in time for the ship to land safely, so they have to split. Um, so this is where our heroes leave the Thermians. Uh, however, uh, the yeah. the lady Thermian, I can't remember her name. It starts with an L. And it's very oh silly. gosh, it uh, began with an L because it showed it. It was like Jane Doe as Le something. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, uh, just backtracking really quick, the scene where her and Tony Shalhoub kiss and her <laughs> tentacles start coming up and then he's more into it. Was yeah. Oh, I called that. I called that yep, whenever totally they started making that. out and then a tentacle appeared and I was like, he's going to be into it. And then he was like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she decides to go to Earth with him. Uh, they crash land back into day three of the convention. Yep. yep. Conveniently not killing anyone. Oh yeah. And landing somehow. right on the the at the convention panel where we see kevin mcdonald as the announcer um so one by one the team comes out um everyone is celebrating but then we realize oh sarah's once again not dead uh then tim allen shoots a gun that looks like the same guns we've been seeing the entire time but just like crushes sarah's into a singularity Look, it's 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 pretty well known at this point that the guns in both Star Wars and Star Trek had different settings. <laughs> they probably just set that one to disintegrate. 
that phasers and do then, disintegrate. So not only are the 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 team is like much more unified than they were at the beginning, they also get their show back, which is oh, kind of that's yeah, the end of the movies. They they get a right. reboot. But yeah, yeah, they get their they get their TNG. And Sam Rockwell gets gets his gets an actual part. Um, so, do you guys have anything else to say about the main bulk of Galaxy Quest before we move on to our <laughs> um, final? Okay, I let's see. <laughs> okay, the the only thing I had was kind of a, a random tangent, and that was um, both this movie and Three Amigos suffer from Smurfette syndrome. Uh, which, you know, I was going to bring up at some point, obviously. Um, but what, but I don't really know why I wrote that down other than that it was a random observation because it's not really relevant to the trope. It was more just kind of like they each have a female character. It's just kind of a love interest for one of the heroes. Okay, to be fair, Galaxy Quest did have two female characters who were both love interests for one of the heroes. <laughs> Uh, but um but um of course through that both three amigos and galaxy quest had kind of the foremost character who was like seeking out the heroes in three amigos it was carmen in galaxy quest it was mathazar and of course they have different roles because carmen's more of love interest mathazar is more of just like a kooky guy that like is sweet you kind of want to like right you still kind of want to make him proud um but anyways that was kind of all i had to say Um, it was uh, like yeah not a lot of female characters not a lot of non-white characters that aren't waiting to be saved by a white savior or waiting to murder the white people yeah yeah that too right el guapo and such so i guess i guess we kind of talked about um enjoying the movie whether we did or not at the beginning so we don't really need to dive into that so we can just dive right into analysis all right so discuss our thoughts that i've withheld that like compared the two yeah um or the the, or the use of the trope in general and like the differences and how they hit certain beats um because they they do in general address the same like they said this is the same trope the the mistaken for badass um but they 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 come at them come at it in different ways um on totally surface level both of them have their their mottos the three amigos yeah, have, the their, motto, have their little speech that. and the the salute and galaxy quest they have never give up never surrender right um yes there's actually um and if you give me a second i will pull it up i have it somewhere um there's a full quote where they have the uh will be there thing um oh yeah galaxy quest it is yeah as long as there is injustice, whenever there is a Targathian, or whenever a Targathian baby cries out, wherever the stress <laughs> signal sounds among the stars, will be there. This fine ship, this fine crew, never give up and never surrender. Yeah. Which is remarkably similar to the Three Amigos, which is wherever there is injustice, you will find us. Wherever there is suffering, we'll be there. Wherever liberty is threatened, you will find the Three Amigos. Mm. Very similar. <laughs> yes. Um, so the on cert, oh, first off, Galaxy Quest, the characters and the interactions, the, the characters are much more complex and the group dynamic is much more complex. Because in the three amigos, they, yeah. they're, they're, they're all just kind of buddies. Like 
they only ever hate each other in the moment. Like, why'd you do something stupid? Like, <laughs> slappy, 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 yeah, slappy, 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 yeah, um, that was an interesting choice. I, I think it's, you know, it's symptomatic of, I think Galaxy Quest was trying to be more of a movie, uh, whereas, like we mentioned, The Amigos is a little more of an SNL sketch, <laughs> just yes. made into a movie, which is fine. I mean, like, they both work for what they are. Yeah. You know, they don't seem out of place. Um, I would have liked to have seen, just a random thought I had, just thinking about the group dynamics. I would have liked uh, to have seen the pilot character. Uh, I think his character's name's Tommy. Uh, he's played by Daryl Mitchell. I would have liked to have seen him deal with growing up, being famous as that one role as a yeah. kid. It's like touched on once, and then yeah. he's just kind of part of the group. After no, I thought, about, I thought about that too. It was like, why go out of their way to make it so that he was a child actor, like a child character? Um, but then not really have that factor into his character at all. I mean, I know they weren't getting super deep into anyone's character, but it just seemed kind of like a random I inclusion if they weren't going to have that be more of a factor, I guess. Yeah, it just kind of, it didn't go anywhere. I, I really enjoyed his character, but I just yeah. like to have seen that explored more. If you're going to have like that Will Wheaton story in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Um, another thing that they both have in common is that they they both have that moment where after they have the illusion has been shattered um they've come to the realization that these people think that they are their heroes and they know that they're not um that both movies have the moment where they start to refer to their past fake adventures to help them solve the moment mm. they're in right now yeah. like the three amigos will be like oh it's like that one movie right. we did That's you know and then in Galaxy Quest, when they're trying to steal the Beryllium Sphere, they're like, oh, it's like episode 81. We'll do this thing that we did then. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they both kind of have, they both play with that, which is something I like, mm -hmm. um, where, the, where the heroes kind of accept and have to like remember their, their false heroic past to help their current. Right. It, it, it's a framework journey. to help them model right. a path to heroism, I guess. <laughs> to the point that in Galaxy Quest, it's literal. Uh, Kayla pointed out earlier that. Tommy learns how to fly better by literally watching clips right. of him moving his hands. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, yeah, because it's almost like they're teaching themselves, but the <laughs> the them who is teaching them <laughs> is the is the is the constructed version. Right. I like that uh, Galaxy Quest, I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. I think Galaxy Quest handles this trope a little better than three amigos. Oh. It yeah, certainly it, landscapes it, has a, much it more, a lot more. It, it takes a, a stronger look at it. It also has a much more deft hand. <laughs> but, uh, it's, meta. it's meta. But they kind of make fun of them using references to the show in the beginning, and then it comes full circle and becomes useful. But when Tim Allen's like rolling to explore that planet and Sigourney Reaper <laughs> like, do the front flips help? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the, the only other real comparison note that I had was that at the very end, the Amigos are riding off into the sunset. We don't get any clue that they're going back to their old life. You get the feeling that they're going to stay like the vigilantes. 
But then Galaxy Quest ends with our heroes re-embracing their their old roles and getting a reboot of their show. Mm. That's true, yeah. That It's interesting because it's like, so they've kind of done this real-world heroism thing, and yet they're going back to the show. So it's like, what are we meant to learn from that, right? Like, did the status quo change? It's, it's I think it... it... This may not be answering your question specifically, but it's more of a result of the way they both set out. The Amigos ended up where they were. The, the reason they got fired was because of their own arrogance. Mm-hmm. They wanted more money to continue doing the gig they were doing. Yeah. Whereas at the beginning, the Galaxy Quest, they're bitter about their old roles, which is very different. They're not dying to go back to them. They want to shed that. Yeah. You know? Um, whereas the, so the Amigos have to learn to like be selfless and become the heroes whereas opposed to Galaxy Quest where they, they, I guess, have to learn the lessons of the life that they have tried to shed. Mm -hmm. Um, they both still have to learn how to be heroes from the parts that they've played. Um, but they come, they both start at very different places. Yeah. Yeah. The... The group in Galaxy Quest goes back to Earth like um, more. They're more enlightened. They've been through something together. They're they've learned to be better people through it. And then there's literally Tim Allen passing the space adventure torch to uh, Malthazar at the end. Um, hmm. So they have yeah. someone. The three amigos didn't really have anyone else to be like. Okay, here. Take our take our hats. You're the you're the heroes. They had to, to continue <laughs> yeah. to be the heroes, whereas yes. Galaxy Quest they were able to pass the hero torch right on, and they could just kind of move on with their lives. Right, that's kind of interesting, but it, it also kind of raises the question of like, what was it for? What did they learn? How will they utilize this going forward? Do you think that the Three Amigos ended that way because they were banking on a sequel? <laughs> That's a good question. I that would watch that. I would watch sequel. that sequel. It would be awful. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would be a terrible, terrible sequel. Probably. That but, didn't happen. But, uh, we're, yeah, where sequels have happened. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I'm just kind of wondering, like, what was um since they go back to having the show like what was what was gained for them like how did they get become different you know going forward because the movie focused so strongly on character development or character conflict however you want to put it uh, well at least in comparison to three amigos um so like how did they change as a result of it i guess is what i'm still kind of hung up on they both became better people, but like the amigos were forced to give up their Hollywood lifestyle and learn. Whereas Galaxy Quest, they just learned to become better people. That was it. And then they went back to being famous actors, but they weren't, they didn't hate their lives and they didn't hate each other. <laughs> they, embra- they embraced uh, what they were good at. They, their right, friendships we also- were reinvigorated. Um, Tim Allen stopped being a douche nozzle. Right, we also, because with Galaxy well, Quest, we also... in Galaxy Quest, you did. <laughs> asterisk. <laughs> we, we also got to remember that Galaxy Quest is impartial, like, partially based on real life. Mm-hmm. So it is about these real actors, true, in one yeah. way, learning to embrace their roles that they're famous for, and that they actually... That's those, those roles meant something to people. Yeah. 
that's true that seeing the value of that uh that constructed right. image which three I amigos guess. does not have to worry about, no. about that it's not making a commentary about yeah. some real actors in the year 1916 right <laughs> right um yeah, that that's a good point. Um, which kind of leads me into what I was, like I said, kind of rambling about to Caleb last night before I remembered that I would have to actually talk about it on the show. <laughs> um, was that so? If we kind of you know step back and look at this trope, which is the basis of our discussion tonight, the uh, <laughs> mistaken for badass trope. Um, I think you know, if we want to get into conjecture on, like, the appeal of these forms of storytelling, which we're going to be discussing over the course of this podcast, I would say the main appeal of this one, beyond the obvious comedic hijinks (laughs) of the mistaken identity, which, you know, has been a thing for forever, you know, that was, like, Shakespeare's whole thing, Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that, I would say the appeal of this particular trope is that it kind of, how do I put it? Allows you to see, it allows you to construct a heroic image of yourself based on how other people perceive you. Mm-hmm. I don't. I feel like I could phrase, I could phrase that better. Um, no, no, that makes sense. It it kind of enables the fantasy of other pe- people perceiving you as a hero, even when you don't perceive yourself as one, and thereby allowing yourself to build upon that based on other people's belief in t- belief in you and that can allow you to believe in yourself uh to make yourself into that person i guess um so beyond the mistaken identity hijinks uh i think that's kind of the core emotional component of it uh is the ability to yeah like i said build an identity off of other people's confidence which you know <laughs> some of us rely very heavily on that <laughs> but um but i think that's kind of what the main emotional draw of it is because that's kind of what we see in that trope is that the the people who are mistaken for heroes always eventually end up taking on that mantle for real yeah. The, and of course, before that happens, they have to be exposed because, you know, the stakes have to be raised. We have to get that development. But the the key turning point is that they always end up choosing that, um, which I think is what makes it so great. So it's not just about exposing people as frauds. It's about people kind of seeing their own flaws and other people seeing them, but then kind of rising beyond that because you have that basis to build on that that faith um in yourself <laughs> anyways does anyone want to, sorry i'm just kind of rambling does anyone want to say anything else nope uh just our audience please send us those recommendations and what are your favorite examples of the mistaken for badass trope that we may have yeah. missed and not talked yeah, about that'd be some good discussion right because there's plenty more like it's a pretty popular trope we just picked these in particular because they kind of have a similar vibe i guess they're comedies they um well most examples of this trope are comedy yeah but also they feature actors in particular like actors who have a show or movies and mm-hmm. people see it and mistake it for the real thing yeah but but we would love to hear other examples of this trope that we could think about further maybe expand our our analysis of it a little bit yeah anything yeah. um well 
Thank you, audience, for joining us on this first episode of our podcast. Um, we are still in quarantine, so we're doing this over Zoom. Uh, so please yeah. excuse any technical blips that you might hear. Um, we're figuring it out. We do plan on recording this in person as soon as it is safe. Um, my name's Justin Butler. You can find me on Twitter at Blame it on Butler. Uh, my name is Caleb. You can find me on Twitter at actual underscore Caleb. <laughs> my name's Stephanie. You can find me at Steph has no name on Twitter. All right. Thank you everybody for joining. Fancy sign off slogan. <laughs> what? What's that? We'll catch you on the flip side. Yeah, peace. Later days. Is that trademarked? Probably. <laughs> and done. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can find us online on Twitter and Instagram at SoundsFamiliar. If you'd like to get in contact with us, drop us a line at soundsfamiliar at gmail.com. We'd like to thank our friend Chelsea for our logo. Be sure to check her out on Instagram at ChelseaBHDesigns. We'd also like to thank Shane Quick for our theme music. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes. We'll see you next time on Sounds Familiar.